Welcome to the Digital Ecology Podcast. Here we create a window into the backstory of technology adoption in England's National Health Service. I'm your host, Victoria Betton. Today, I'm joined by Ahuti Ray. Ahuti and I have known each other for a while now. And, and what I find so fascinating about Ahuti is that she has a really interesting background. She's arrived in the digital health space, but her background is actually large-scale innovation and digital transformation across a whole range of different industries. So she brings a sort of a corporate experience, a corporate lens. But as she will tell you in this podcast, she's found digital health to be the place that she finds most meaningful. And now she works with startups of all different sizes, helping them understand how to develop products and services in the healthcare space. So she's a venture partner with The Conduit. She runs a number of different networks and is just an all-round brilliant, intelligent and very interesting woman. So I hope you're going to enjoy our conversation today. So um, welcome, Ahuti. It's so lovely to have you here with me today. Thank you, Victoria. Thanks for having me. So Ahuti, maybe we could start by getting into your background because you haven't got a health background, actually, even though where you've arrived is digital health. So I'd just love to hear about what brought you um, to this point and what your story is. Sure. Yeah. So you're right. I'm not a native healthcare person. And my previous sort of 20, 25 years has been very diverse in terms of industry sectors. So I think at the last count, um, before I moved exclusively into health tech, I think the last count was around 14 different industry sectors. And a lot of that was with um, large multinationals, corporates, where the services that I and my business provided were large-scale transformation and innovation services. So this was really around um, utilizing tech as an enabler, but really kind of forward projections on you know, new ways of working, new business models, new markets, and tech was always a common denominator through all of that work. And healthcare and life sciences were amongst those industry sectors as well. So we did work with private healthcare providers, pharma companies, as well as several contracts with the NHS where we helped them transform pathways utilizing, you know, different types of tech and doing different kind of reorganizations and operating models. The majority of our focus was around community services. And I guess what brought me to this point was an increasing level of passion, care, curiosity about healthcare as a sector in its own right. So I've always been quite pro-health. And in my younger days, that's kind of all about me and my health and you know, really interested in being proactive about me and my health. And then obviously, as time went by, it was then about my family and my community and my friends. And then it became about my children's health. And then it became about my mother's health. And um, I think through all of that, there was this kind of growing realization that it's actually not easy um, to, to look after yourself. It's not. And particularly in this country, we have developed this kind of culture of being quite passive about our health because we have free healthcare and, you know, we just rock up to a doctor or a pharmacist and, you know, we just kind of take whatever advice and medications, et cetera, that's been offered. And 
because I came across friends and family members that needed more than just that, it really kind of forced me to, as I helped them to navigate their health journeys, it really forced me to look beyond what was obviously being provided to investigate other routes, other paths where they could be looked after in a holistic way. And I don't necessarily mean that in terms of alternative medicines. I mean that in terms of whole health, you know, like them as a person and everything that they need proactively as well as reactively to look after their health. And, you know, as time went on, there was just that growing realization that what we get offered is just simply not enough. And as individuals, we need to do more. There needs to be more funding as well. There needs to be more innovation as well. There needs to be more research, especially when it comes to women and the gaps in medical data, the big, large holes we have. So it was actually just a natural coming together of lots of different disparate experiences and insights and journeys uh, through other people's health challenges that culminated in me getting to a point midlife, <laughs> um, call it the midlife crisis if you like, but I'll take this midlife crisis, um, which is I need to do something about this and what can I do? So I took a year out pro bono and stepped away from my business and all the work that I was doing and just offered up my time for free for that year for anyone who would take me so long as it was in the health sector. I really wasn't choosy. I just kind of wanted this deep immersion into health from different vantage points to figure out how I could package up all of my skills and experience and play a part in this sector. So it was really that which was the formative year, all, all before COVID, of course, who knew what was coming down the line. But all of that was what went into a decision that I wanted to move into the health tech space. And that's what I did. And in that formative year, what did you learn through that immersion? What are the standout things that you took from that, that year's experience? Well, one obvious thing, um, and maybe this is confirmation bias, so I declare that up front, but one obvious thing for me was the, the latent role of technology in healthcare. I knew that from the previous work that I had done within NHS and private healthcare providers and pharma companies, but it was quite shocking as to the extent of that. And I, I think probably health and education were the two biggest standout sectors that I felt were just, uh, I just couldn't believe, you know, the fact that we have all of these experiences as consumers and as customers today when it comes to technology-led experiences. And yet with education and health, we're so far behind. So I think it was confirmation rather than anything new. And that really pointed me in the direction of, well, where is the innovation? So the other key learning for me, given that I had this kind of corporate background with multinationals, I mean, my, my world and the startup world never intersected before, never, ever did. Mm -hmm. And that year out is really what exposed me to the startup sector because I was really looking hard for where is the innovation, you know, because healthcare needs it. And I don't mean sort of infrastructure type innovation of 
records and data interoperability and joined up kind of systems. I mean, we need that, don't get me wrong. But I was kind of thinking about um, the future of healthcare delivery in the way that we have Netflix and Amazon and online banking and all of that. You know, it was that type of innovation that I was searching for because I definitely did not see that in the NHS and I didn't see it in any other healthcare systems that I was looking at outside of the UK. And that's what exposed me to the startup sector because I just thought, well, it has to be happening somewhere because the healthcare sector needs it. So where is it? And that was such a huge learning for me in that year out as to the amount of innovation, but the amount that was just sitting there unused and on shelves, you know, and the struggle that the startups were having. And so that took me in the direction of starting to work with some startups that year and learning a little bit more about the startup sector, seeing the failure rates with all the stats, seeing sort of how they get funded or, or not. And took a step back and thought, wow, well, if, the, if these are the general stats, you know, for startups generally, uh, sector agnostic, then in healthcare, it's going to be a lot worse. It's going to be a lot more challenging because healthcare as an industry is very regulated. It's risk averse. They're not kind of digitally, not necessarily savvy. You know, the maturity isn't quite there in terms of thinking visionary when it comes to technology. Of course, these are generalizations. You know, it does exist in pockets, but as a system, it didn't exist as far as I could see. And I just thought these startups are just going to struggle. They're going to struggle navigating the worlds of insurance and pharma and healthcare systems. And that was such a big insight for me that actually that's where I've got to focus. And the other thing that I learned is the difference between the majority of entrepreneurs and founders in the health tech sector compared to other sectors. And what I learned about that difference was how the founders and entrepreneurs in the health tech sector are very, very mission-led, you know, very purpose-driven. The majority of them that I came across didn't necessarily see this as an opportunistic play. They weren't serial entrepreneurs. They hadn't really had a business prior to whatever startup they were, you know, in, in the process of setting up or had set up. These were people that had a personal story about their health journey or a loved one and saw that there was a better way of doing it. And they were remortgaging their houses. They were putting massive cash outlays in. They were, you know, grabbing money from friends and family to do what they were really passionate about. So... To be honest, by the end of that year with those three or four learnings, it was just an absolute no-brainer. And, you know, my career, my education was in tech, but tech all those years ago was, was different to tech now, of course. But I kind of felt like it was meant to be. You know, it was meant to be that I join up these learnings and I continue with where I started life professionally, which was, you know, just tech as a force for good. And if it's done responsibly and ethically, it can be a very powerful enabler. I'm so curious. I mean, you described the barriers so well. And of course, the main provider of health services in the UK is, is the NHS. So if you're wanting to innovate, then the NHS needs to be your customer, I guess. Not always. You can be, have a consumer play. But if you're trying to solve big health, important health issues, then I guess startups are, are often thinking about the NHS and in my experience, almost always without fail, underestimate 
what they're up against and the complexity of selling to the NHS, creating value for the NHS, being able to deliver services, products and scale and so on. So I'm curious as to what do you say to those startups, those mission-led startups that have remortgaged their house and they think they've solved a problem and they can see that they could create benefits for people um, accessing health services because they are up against a really systemic, um, complex challenge. Yeah, I think what I would say to them is become very industry smart because what I witness in the majority of cases is the innovation is born out of a gap, a problem, an opportunity, and the need is there. But what I often see is the innovation is progressed without really getting an understanding of the context within which that innovation can then play a part, that solution. And without that context, without that understanding, it's really difficult. You, you basically bring on more challenge than what you need. And it's a tricky balance, Victoria, because in true startup style, you know, you kind of come up with a concept, you do some research, you do an MVP, you kind of get it out there in the hands of people, you iterate, you realize that you haven't kind of Uh, got a few things right and you reiterate well in its purest sense that's still all very appropriate and right and good except you then kind of zoom in into the context of healthcare and the context is too important to not factor in right at the outset so does that mean that the pace is going to slow down at the outset yeah it will You know, it's not the kind of uh, fast pace, fail fast kind of, it it can't be in healthcare. Not to say that there isn't room for failures and mistakes in a safe way, there is, but doing that initial due diligence and research around the context, like where is this solution? Where am I imagining this solution is going to fit in the end-to-end pathway from a patient and a clinician and other stakeholder perspectives? What do the NICE guidelines currently say, you know, is the first line of treatment, the second line of treatment? How are people's jobs set up? What systems are already in play? If I'm now going to drop this solution in, it's like dropping a pebble into a pond. There's this huge ripple effect. So what is that ripple effect of my solution being dropped in? What's going to be the ripple effect of that? And how can I make life easier to have my solution implemented for all of the stakeholders concerned? And that's what I would say to a lot of the startups that really have some intention about your use case, your value proposition, your business model. And intention itself is not enough you know, really understand how your solution is going to fit in and have an answer and have options for other services and other products where you're actually going to help make that happen. Because it's not enough to drop the solution in. You're actually making everyone's life more difficult, even though the solution itself is trying to solve a problem and an important problem. And it maybe does that very well, but by solving that one problem, it could create other problems. And we have to also understand the incentive system because sadly, and I have firsthand experience of this through some of the the roles I have on steering committees for NHS trusts, 
where sadly there is still a huge fragmentation in terms of accountability and budgets and how things work. So even though a solution has the power to actually join up care across primary community and secondary, at the end of the day, who's commissioning it, who's funding it, you know, because that stakeholder is not so interested in using the full end-to-end potential of that solution. And so as a startup, you're kind of designing this in a transformative way, thinking, you know, it's at the interface that things go wrong. It's at the handoff points between primary community or community and secondary that that's where the patient's left hanging, you know. And so I'm going to come up with something that solves that. Well, you know, the context is important because if the incentives are not aligned, you know, as, as great as your solution is and as transformative and visionary and patient-minded as it might be, people are not going to want to implement it end-to-end necessarily. So that's probably a lot of, uh, <laughs> that's probably a lot more detail uh, in answering that. But, you know, context is king, I would say, in, in Startup World for Health Techs. Yeah, and I, I completely agree with you. And I think it's so important for people to understand that solving a problem is not enough. You know, there's, there, there are so yeah. many barriers. And if you add one iota of extra work to anyone in the system, which is already creaking, without a lot of value to offset that additional click or that additional login or whatever it might be, then you know, you're not going to get far. So I always remember a GP sitting on a panel years ago with a GP who said, every time I get pitched a new piece of technology, I'm always told it's going to save me time. And every time it always adds work. <laughs> and I thought that was, yeah. um, that was really salient. Um, yeah. So tell me about, I know that you're really passionate about uh, women's health. And um, I know you've been doing some thinking and public speaking about some of the challenges around um, women's health and also the challenge for women founders as well because of course you've already talked about driven mission-led founders and that's very much the case in the women's digital health sphere as well so what are you seeing in terms of the problems out there that maybe digital health um, femtech can help address for women and again I'm guessing well I know that there are many barriers for women founders who are trying to make a difference yeah, that's a big question. So I'm going to try and answer it. <laughs> chunk with, it up, uh, chunk it up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll try and answer it at a headline level and then we can drill down um, if we want to. So I think we have to start with first principles when it comes to women's health. And for many people that might be listening to this, it might be that I'm stating the obvious. But as I speak on this topic to different audiences, I've learned not to take anything for granted. I've learned not to assume that this is understood. And therefore, I think it makes sense to think about women's health in the broadest sense, you know, in terms of first principles, because then the challenges and the opportunity to innovate can be better understood. And so in the most complete sense for women's health, there's, you know, maybe two or three points. So there's you know, the the point around sex and gender. And I think it's, well, it is obvious that sex plays a part in terms of how people are regarded in the healthcare system. But what's often overlooked is gender does as well. You know, sex, we're biologically assigned. 
that gender is massively influenced by biases and norms and cultures and that plays a part and holds great sway actually in terms of how people are regarded when they try and seek support for their healthcare. So I think a lot of innovation and founders that are trying to do something in this space are thankfully thinking about sex and gender when they're considering their innovation. I think the other thing is when we think about women's health, our brain goes automatically to health concerns that affect women because we are women biologically. And we think about fertility, we think about menopause, we think about maternal health, we might think about ovarian cancer, breast cancer. These are things that are unique to women. But what we often don't think about are the health challenges that women have that also are challenges for men, but they affect women disproportionately or they affect women differently. And this is where we've got huge gaps in our research and in our medical data because there are conditions you know, like dementia, like osteoporosis, like cardiovascular disease, lung cancer, all of these affect women differently or disproportionately compared to men. But yet when you look at the research, the majority of the research is influenced by male dominance. And so coming back to your question around what are we doing in terms of innovation in this space, a vast majority of the innovation is addressing health concerns that are unique to women, which is why we're seeing this explosion in startups that are addressing, you know, uh, menopause or fertility or postnatal depression or pelvic disorder or, you know, these are kind of concerns that are specific and unique to women because of our biology. But I think there's still huge scope to also innovate where it's really about other conditions, other diseases, but they affect women differently and disproportionately. And I think what we can do with this innovation, because with digital comes this power of data, is we can really start bridging this gap that we have in terms of uh, data for women. You know, and of course, we've got this gap because women were not allowed to participate in clinical trials until the early 90s, you know, and then we had Reference Man. I don't know if you've heard of Reference Man, but this is like a, an archetype of a person that was put into medical training and education to help educate medics on safe doses of radiation and dosages for medications. But Reference Man is a man and he's white and he's 154 pounds, and he's five foot seven, and he's like, I don't know, 30 or something. I can't remember his exact age. But what that means is the male dominance that prevails over what dosages and what are safe doses of radiation, et cetera, you know, it's hugely, hugely biased because of that. And it therefore means that there are so many implications for women that are not understood. And Therefore, we've also got treatments that are either missing or they don't work on women. So I think when it comes to innovation, we can have solutions that absolutely transform the experience. You know, fertility at home instead of 
having to kind of go in and out of clinics, you know, and have very invasive procedures. Um, so we can definitely make things better in terms of the experience and the success rates of some of these treatments when it comes to women's health. But the real power of the innovation is that gradually we're going to start bridging this gap in medical data. But we need to make a concerted effort to do that. And women increasingly need to feel like they can trust and allow their data to be used and shared, which, of course, is another difficulty and another challenge that we have in terms of keeping that trust. But this is where digital does have tremendous potential. As I was listening to you, I was thinking about those sorts of conditions that you describe where the data, the innovation has been orientated around male bodies and not women's bodies. And I just wonder, are the resources flowing in the right way for founders and innovators to be focusing on those sorts of topics? Because what I'm guessing you're going to tell me <laughs> is that actually women founders, black founders, founders of minority ethnic communities don't get the money in quite the same way as their sort of white male counterparts. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I think there's different levels of problem here when it comes to funding. Women's health is underfunded generally when it comes to research. And then when we look at women-led startups, they're generally underfunded compared to their male counterparts. And then when we look at women-led startups that are innovating for women's health, you know, they're also underfunded. <laughs> um, so I think we've kind of got multiple levels of underfunding and it's a compounded effect. So you then take a women-led startup that's innovating for women's health, you know, and they're starting off at a disadvantage already. And then you layer onto that if that woman-led startup is founded by somebody from an underrepresented uh, background community and, you know, they're even further back. So I'm kind of imagining this, this road and the start point to the finish line, I mean, you know, the finish line is the same for everybody, but the start point is very different for everybody because of these different levels and layers, for sure. And what do you think we can do? So I think we're both connected to various different networks, looking at women's health, and, and I want to go on to the digital mental health network that you've created, Ahuti, but what do you think we can do to try and interrupt some of these norms and to um, create the space for the sort of innovation that will meet the needs of, of women and underrepresented communities? Thankfully, I think there is a groundswell of movement now. And I think what we can do, you and I, and anyone listening to this that is feeling empowered to do so can also help with this, is to support the movement that is now happening. So if I break that down a little bit, women are now advocating for their own health. We have a voice. We have different platforms. This podcast is a great example of a platform and there are others as well. And I think we need to use the voice we've been given, you know, just to raise awareness, make people really kind of open their eyes to some of the, the issues, some of the real legacy issues that are so intricately interwoven that they're actually quite difficult to disentangle and uproot. But the more that we put exposure on this and call it out, you know, over time, it will get disentangled. So I think that's one thing is really to, to advocate, to, to use our voice, to 
be interested in this topic and to share what we find and learn. So I think at the most grassroots level, we can all do some of that if we feel that this is an important topic. There are also now some great strides when it comes to national and international programs and policies. I'm not saying that they're going to solve everything, and I'm not saying that it's enough or that they're moving fast enough. But we do have the World Health Organization putting spotlight on it. You know, closer to home, we've got the Women's Health Strategy for England that we saw come to fruition last year. And have we delivered on all of that? No, but you know, there is movement, you know, there is movement. So I think there's something about continuous development and coming together of larger organizations and industry groups and influencers to do more of this kind of work. Kearney just recently launched a couple of publications on this topic. One was an open letter with some call to action around women's health. Another piece of work was a paper which sets out a vision for women-centric cancer care. So there is work going on and we just need to, you know, just support some of these pieces of work, read it, share it, take an interest in it. If we have people in our networks that can do something about some of these calls to action, then we should leverage our networks for that. And then on the investment side, we, we just need to, you know, grow the number of female investors, quite frankly, because <laughs> whilst we need to we need to help our counterpart male investors, you know, really kind of wrap their head around why all of this is important, the more female investors we get round the table, the more exposure some of these femtech startups will get naturally, even if it's not the deal to invest in. That it's not about actually the money on the table in in the end. It's a fact that these startups, these women founders actually get to tell their story and they get some feedback and mentoring from the investors, even if those investors are not ready to commit. So, uh, and women investors are more likely to do that. I know that's a huge generalization and somebody listening to this will want to <laughs> shoot me down for saying that, but <laughs> that's what I believe. I think that's a fair, a generalization, but a fair one. So really this is about um, <laughs> keeping it on the agenda, agitating finding those routes, whether it be at conferences, on podcasts, in panels, to just keep this topic on the agenda, that sort of raising awareness, because that's how you start to influence, you know, things like the women's health strategy and so on. I don't think it's a, it's something that we'll all be doing for some time, I suspect. Um, Ahuti, I'm, I'm a massive fan of networks and I know you are too. And I went along to my first digital mental health network that you run in partnership with a conduit. Could you just say a little bit about that? I mean, I, my background's mental health, so I, I really enjoyed um, coming along to the event. Could you just say a bit about where that's come from and, and what you're hoping to achieve with that network? Yeah, absolutely. So as you say, it's an initiative that was started with Conduit Connect and MQ Mental Health and myself. And this started a couple of years back and it was actually never intended to become a network and a community, uh, but I guess there was the energy for it. And here we are, you know, a, a few years later with the network growing. It started because a small group of us across Conduit Connect and MQ, myself, felt that 
we need to build stronger bridges between the silos of research and innovation that we witnessed were happening in mental health and the silos being very important in their own right, doing really valuable work, but could be more powerful if we built some bridges between them. So we started out really conceptualizing, well, how amazing would it be if in the same room we could bring the innovators that are creating new transformative solutions for mental health, and we brought together academics and researchers and charities who had access to all sorts of other networks and research that they were either commissioning or participating in. And then we bring them together with investors who then realize the eventual value of bringing to life some of the research, which was demonstrating that something needs to change with the innovations, which were then really activating this research and bringing it to life in terms of a a solution that could reach people and then the funding coming into that so that it could become a sustainable proposition that could then scale. So that was the original intention and we hosted this event um, at The Conduit and it was a great success. And so we thought, well, great, you know, that, that did the job. We brought together you know, these different stakeholder groups and we've built some bridges and people are connected. And then we just started getting some requests for follow-up events and, you know, will there still be this, can we, can we set up a WhatsApp group? Can we stay connected? Can we meet again? And I guess that was the birth of the Mental Health Innovation Network. And we recently had the fifth meetup. We meet up every quarter It's very community-led. It's not-for-profit. Nobody's gaining anything commercial, really, from this. Everyone is very respectful. We're not in the group and selling our wares shamelessly. Um, We're actually there in much deeper conversations about some of the challenges and the problems and really taking on a problem-solving mindset and attitude and just trying to help each other. And that might just mean making introductions. It might mean signposting. It might actually mean collaborating on a, on a piece of work, on a project. And the network is growing organically. Um, we try to be quite inclusive. I think we're sensitive to the fact that what prohibits that slightly is because our physical meetups are in London, which makes it tricky, obviously, to be really inclusive of everyone. Uh, But the intention is there for anyone to be part of it. And I think the only simple rule that we have is come along in person and forge a human connection. And after that, we add people to the WhatsApp group for the digital version of the network. But this is not really, you know, we've got no targets to hit here in terms of how big this community grows. So for us, it's really Uh, let's forge some human connections and have people talking in person and contributing. And then when that transfers over into a WhatsApp group, it feels a little bit more connected and meaningful. I was really struck when I went to the one a couple of months ago, just what a good balance you did have in terms of startups, people from the NHS, investors, academics, charities, and so on. Because that's quite unusual to get that sort of mix. I wonder... What's your sense of what's bringing people 
there and what are the what are the themes that you're seeing? I mean, you've already talked a lot about some of those barriers and I'm sure those will be very much on startups' minds, but I just wonder what sort of themes you're seeing, you know, through through the community. Yeah, I think it was always important to make it a multi-stakeholder setting. The first one was probably more narrow in that we focused on, you know, research and investors and startups. When I came into this space, it was very much for systems level change. And this was an obvious area where I saw we could start moving towards that. And there were clearly some stakeholder groups not represented in that first event. And so with each subsequent event, it's the power of the network and the community that we expose where we feel we've got some gaps and then people invite in others from their network that can really make it a more representative group. And I think it's almost this symbiotic relationship, therefore, that goes on that I think because it is diverse and it is represented, it means people want to still be in it and contribute to it and they get something from it because you would hear perspectives that perhaps you don't have access to hear in, a, in an informal way. I mean, you can go in knock on the door of the NHS and try and speak to people there, of course, but it's quite difficult to do unless those relationships are already there from a previous role or, or engagement. And so in one forum, you can hear from an insurance provider, an employer, an NHS clinician. You can hear from an innovator. You can hear from a charity. And that was always the intention. Now, we don't always get all of the stakeholders represented at every event that we have. But I think the group itself now is quite well balanced um, in terms of the representation. And the intention is just to do more and more of that. In terms of the themes that I'm picking up on, it's interesting whether it's a small early stage company that might be sort of in year two with a direct consumer launch and maybe a pilot happening with an employer or a pilot happening in the NHS versus a company that has been around for a good eight, nine years, got a very scalable business model, have kind of proven themselves, got the stripes. Both companies are still struggling with similar challenges, which is about the business model. Even though yeah. the larger company has seemingly got that business model established, it doesn't yet feel like it's sustainable. It might be revenue generating, that business might be profitable, it might have helped them get their series C, series D round, etc. But they're still struggling with that, as are the smaller businesses that are still trying to find product market fit. But what it does is it gives a forward projection, I guess, that there's more that we need to solve. These are not just teething problems and startup challenges. These are challenges for digital health en masse, whether the company is small or it's big, and therefore something in the broader dynamic is going to have to shift and change. And maybe some of that will happen organically over time as employers, consumers, NHS commissioners, insurance companies, pharma players, you know, as they start figuring out what role they play in terms of accessing some of these digital health solutions. But I feel like we've got space here to do a little bit more proactive enablement to, to solve some of these challenges. Maybe there do need to be sort of some government-funded initiatives and programs. You know, there, there's definitely something that we need to do to accelerate 
some of these challenges because if the small businesses are facing them and the large businesses are facing them, it's something systemic that needs to be solved here. I'm just thinking about where we started the conversation. You talked about, you know, where's the innovation, your experience with yourself and your family around accessing healthcare services. And I absolutely agree with you. These are systemic, complex um, problems. And if we don't if we don't solve it, if we don't address it with and for our national health service, so those innovators will have to go somewhere else, <laughs> either abroad or selling yeah. into um, employment programs or private healthcare. So I think um, it would be such a shame if we can't find a way to unblock some of these um, tricky problems. But unfortunately, they are wicked problems. There's no one easy solution. And that's why um, that's why they remain, I guess. But I love the fact that you're bringing the different actors together to at least start talking about it and to at least air them so that we can start to uh, start to maybe pick away at them. Um, Ahuti, it's been so lovely chatting with you. I wonder whether we could just finish on on one final sort of quick theme. I'm I'm curious about the future and what an optimistic Ahuti might say. Um, about the digital health sector and then maybe a more cautious and less optimistic <laughs> Ahuti might say. So what, where would you like to see us getting to and what do you think uh, might be possible in the next couple of years in the digital health sector, given all the challenges that we've discussed over the last half an hour or so? So I think we do need to see some consolidation. And whilst that sounds like I'm starting to describe the pessimistic view, I'm actually here describing the optimistic view, um, I would like to see some consolidation because it's just not sustainable currently in terms of having the vast number of consumer-facing solutions, the vast number of point solutions, people knocking on the door of all of the different payers and providers trying to sell. As a sector, we're overwhelmed, you know, and what happens when we're overwhelmed? We need to, you know, we need to curate, we need to refine, we need to focus, we need to hone in on stuff. And I think as a sector, we need that. And that is the optimistic view that I look forward to some of that. Now, there's going to be some fallout. You know, sadly, we will see some companies that close their doors. There'll be some companies that sell off their assets. There'll be consolidation, mergers, acquisitions that happen. And I hope individual companies and founders get appropriate reward for the hard work that they've put in. But my macro view for the sector is that's healthy and that needs to happen. Investment, whilst it was sky high in those COVID years, that was a blip. That's not sustainable either. And what we're seeing now is, you know, a realistic, sustainable uh, flow of private capital as well. But that could only fuel and fund so many innovations and more innovations aren't necessarily better. We just need innovations to be adopted, you know. And so I think for me, the optimistic view is that there is a period of consolidation. There's a period of more sustainable capital flowing into these startups that we start merging across point solutions. We start merging across a diagnostic company, a self-management company, you know, a post-op company that are all operating in the same clinical pathway. 
and that they come together so that there's an end-to-end -end, uh, solution. You know, that's what I would love to see, hope to see, and I think that's what's needed for the sector if the sector is going to gain some momentum and make an impact. Um, I think the pessimistic view would be that things like, you know, the big hype around generative AI and some of the other hypes that we've got with areas where companies are innovating and there's, you know, big valuations attached to them that will have more kind of failures in quotes. You know, every failure is still an opportunity to learn and that's how new sectors get formed, of course. But that will create too much cynicism and there will start to be an unhealthy level of skepticism around the sector and that will give the sector a bad reputation. So I think if we don't take time to understand the casualties that we've already had, because each of them have got their own story as to why they've ended up being where they are, you know, we need to take time to understand what's going wrong and to adjust things. And if we focus too much on the hyped areas and don't focus on the foundations and the necessities, then I think we're not going to be taken seriously. Ahuti, that's a brilliant place to end. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been lovely to have you chatting with me. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you for listening to the Digital Ecology podcast. Please like, subscribe and review via the usual channels. My book Towards a Digital Health Ecology is available via Amazon and you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Medium at Victoria Betton. 